Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show. Thank you for joining us to lead, learn, and laugh. Learn market knowledge and best practices to lead your company's success. And that's whatever type of company you work with. And laugh, I believe we have to have some fun along the way. Well, hello, I'm Michael Bull, your host to the world of commercial real estate. Today, we're going to explore investing in distressed real estate and notes. You know, as the recovery grinds forward, there are still plenty of distressed commercial real estate opportunities. Today, we'll share the state of the distressed market, including the current status of CMBS mortgage delinquency and maturities, including the latest statistics and numbers of delinquent loans across the country. Then we'll discuss some of the various types of investment opportunities available, including buying notes, investing with existing sponsors, and best practices for finding and securing distressed properties at this point in the cycle. Please welcome my first guest, Tom Fink, Senior Vice President with TREP. TREP is the leading provider of CMBS and commercial mortgage information, analytics, and technology for the global securities and investment management industries. You may be very surprised by the information you can access with their services. Check them out at TREP.com. Tom Fink, welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. Michael, it's my pleasure to be back on with you. Well, thank you, sir. And uh, I'd just like to ask you, what is the uh, current status of loans in the CMBS world? Are default rates uh, still improving at this point? Yes, we are. Yes, they are. In fact, we just you know released our numbers uh, for February in the last couple of days, and what we found is the delinquency rate across the board is continues to improve. Um, I think loan loss levels of loan severities have stabilized. Um, we continue to see you know losses. Uh, particularly under $25 million, somewhere in the you know, 55 60% range. Uh, the big loans continue to perform better than the small loans, but I think that's also a function of the smaller loans tend to be in smaller markets. Okay. Well, help us put it in perspective a little bit, Tom. How do the, the default rates today compare to, to, say, two or three years ago? Well, let's let's put it this way. When we released our numbers uh, for yesterday, for February, we're showing a delinquency rate of 9.42%. We're actually back to about where we were a year ago. But between you know 9.37 last year, 9.42 this year, we hit a spike of well over 10% in the middle of 2012. So it's come down significantly, and we expect to see that number continue to decline. And I think that's driven by two things. One is we've seen a rebirth of the issuance in the CMBS market. It's probably the most one of the more robust uh, structured product markets out there. You know, issuance last year was around 49 billion. Uh, forecast this year is somewhere between 70 and 80 billion. Uh, that's the current thinking among most of the people in the business. Okay. Well, which property sectors do you see the highest and lowest? default rates? Well, I think they're all pretty high overall. I think retail, surprisingly enough, for all the blurb you hear about um, the death of retail is actually the best performing asset class from a delinquency point of view. Um, You know, we've talked to a number of our clients in the retail space, and what's really been driving it is there's been a lack of supply in a lot of markets, and that's allowed a lot of retail space to get absorbed and reabsorbed over time. I mean, I notice it even just driving around, uh, you know, my, the area of North Jersey where I live, it's what I call the diner survey. We go out to dinner at the diner on Saturday night, and I look at the properties to see how many vacancies are there. And you see the retail properties in particular tend to be fairly well occupied. Uh, industrial, while it's gotten better, still is relatively high. Hotels have surprised us. They've actually fixed up a lot of their their problems over time. And I think that's really um, being driven by two things. One is the increased amount of 
economic activity, which has people moving around. And I think, quite frankly, it's just low interest rates have helped a lot of people continue to pay on their mortgages. Yeah, that's very helpful. And I'm I'm sad to see that going out to eat and uh, going to diners is a way to conduct uh, research because my wife's going to use that one on me. <laughs> well, I, no, I, I, Michael, I just view it as, you know, look, we're all in the real estate business and we all understand that location's important. And, you know, going out and in, in the marketplace and, and being a consumer and just seeing what's going on is part of doing your research as a real estate person. Absolutely. And uh, what are the volume of loans that are set to mature this year and the next few years, Tom? Uh, are we going to see... Well, in the CMBS space, we're actually we're actually at a low point in the maturity cycle. Uh, a lot of loans that were you know sold in 2013 and 14, 2003 and 2004 that would have normally matured in 2013 and 2014 got refinanced um, in the run up of values uh, in the real estate bubble in 06 and 07. So they were actually refinanced and paid off ahead of time. So we're actually looking at between 40 and 50 billion in the uh, CMBS market this year, and probably 50 to 60 billion next year, well within the capacity of the market to absorb and handle the refinancing. But when you add into that, you know, the debt that's on the bank books, the insurance company books, and you know, the government-sponsored enterprises. I mean, the next three years, you're still looking at you know somewhere between 300 and 350 billion of commercial real estate loans that have to be refinanced, restructured, or otherwise handled in the marketplace. Yeah, a few billion here, a few billion there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money, right? (laughs) (laughs) How many of these uh, loans are potentially worth less than the uh, property values? You know, it's funny because when I actually went back and looked at the numbers, more than two-thirds of the loans maturing in any given month roll over and pay off on schedule. So I think it's probably a lot. There's probably more opportunity out there to do a straightforward refinancing than people originally thought. When you look at, you know, whether it's the NACREF numbers or the real capital analytics numbers, you know, property values have probably recovered, you know, anywhere from 30 to 50 percent from their lows post the recession. The latest numbers I've seen, and when I've talked to people, I think that increase in values is starting to level off. But that still puts us in a good place with a lot of the loans that are maturing in the next couple of years. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, these loans are maturing. What percentage are getting paid off, and and what percentage are getting modified or extended? Believe it or not, about two-thirds of the loans are paying off within six months of maturity. Okay. And, our and service- so that leaves about a third that, you know, are extending or you know, doing some modification or maybe going beyond six months before they secure new financing. Okay. And are servicers more aggressive now than they've been in the last several years? And, and what level of foreclosures do you expect uh, this year? Well, I think we continue to see that, you know, the foreclosure REO book uh, continues to be fairly constant. Um, I'd have to look up the number. I don't, I don't have it off the top of my head. But somewhere, you know, in the 20 to $30 billion range uh, is what's in foreclosure. And they'll feed those into the market as they see, you know, the market recovering. Um, I talked to the folks at auction.com, you know, a couple months ago, and their volumes are up significantly. And every loan seller we talk to is very busy right now because I think a lot of lenders are taking advantage of the improving market to either move underlying real estate that they've taken over in an REO situation or to sell distressed notes. Yeah, that's a good time to do that. Well, Tom, today our our show is focused on investors investing in the distressed market. Can you share any advice for investors uh, looking to get into distressed uh, real estate? I mean, first of all, make sure you understand how to operate a piece of real estate. If you're buying a distressed asset, there's a problem. 
very few distressed assets that we're looking at at this point in the cycle are just pure financial distress, just too much debt on the property. I think that was a big factor, you know, in 08 and 09 in terms of driving distress. I think now if you're looking at a distressed property, you're looking at something that from a real estate point of view is broken. And so you have to be able to say, I'm a real estate person. I understand real estate. I will address the real estate issues relating to this property. And you've got the wind at your back right now because there's been very little new construction in most asset classes, the one exception being multifamily. So that means that you know empty space is being reabsorbed. I think if you're buying a distressed retail property, you have to be darn sure you understand the demographics of the market that that property is serving. Um, you know, there's a lot of malls and there's a lot of retail properties that the market has just evolved away from them, and they can't necessarily support the space or the location that they're in now. So if you're not a real estate person and you want to buy distressed real estate, you know, I'd stick to one of the big REITs that's got an active, you know, distressed real estate program, whether it's Rialto or Starwood or one of those. I would not try and do it on your own if you don't understand real estate. Yeah, that's a very good point. And we're short on the break here at time, but are there any trends you see in the marketplace that might surprise people? Um, I think industrial continues to be a strong opportunity for people. I mean, if you can get your hands on a good, well-located industrial property that's got high ceilings and the ability to, you know, bring in big trailers, um, I think you've got something that's going to be profitable, particularly if you're near a knowledge center like Denver, um, Houston, Pittsburgh. It's just amazing how resilient those markets are and where that's that's where the economic activity is going right now. Yeah, well, that's a good point. Well, Tom, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Michael, it's always my pleasure to speak to you. For more information from Tom Fink and TREP, visit TREP.com. Well, after a quick break, we'll have a special guest joining us to discuss strategies related to investing in properties with CMBS loans. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com or call 800-408-BULL. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. If you'd like to know the absolute latest on any commercial real estate-related topics, check out our on-demand show podcast. For example, we had a recent show on mixed-use developments in the new economy and a show on how the tax changes of 2013 may affect the commercial real estate industry and a show last week on the single-tenant net lease investment market. You can access the shows anytime on your smartphone or computer. Just visit iTunes or the show website, commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, today we're exploring investing in distressed real estate and notes. Please welcome my next guest, Ann Hambly, CEO with First Service Solutions. Founded in 2005, First Service Solutions is dedicated to serving as a borrower advocate for commercial mortgage-backed securities, or CMBS, loan issues. As a veteran CEO of leading commercial mortgage servicers, Ann has committed her career to utilize her understanding of the servicing process to work for borrowers. First Service Solutions has completed more than $8.5 billion in CMBS restructures and CMBS assumptions on behalf of their clients. Ann Hamley, welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. 
Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be back. Well, your uh, your last show was very informative. We had a lot of great comments uh, from our listeners, and, and that show is still available uh, on the show website. And, and today I'd like to, to ask you about uh, you know investors and, and, and sellers that are into distressed properties. Should an owner who just wants to get out and sell to a new investor, should they market or, or list their property first, or should they work with an advocate to achieve a discounted payoff first and then go to the market? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the good news is that to get out of a CMBS loan, um, since it's non-recourse, it's a little easier than breaking out of jail, but it's not totally uh, easy. Hmm. So although the loans are non-recourse, um, where the value of the property is less than the loan amount and the owner just wants to get out, the process <clears throat> really needs to be like a dual one. So while you know we serve, as you said before, as a borrower advocate, so while we as the borrower's advocate are settling on a price that the special servicer will accept for the property, which is a process all by itself. The borrower needs to go ahead and list the property for sale um, without a stated sales price because he doesn't know what right now he can accept. What he's trying to do is figure out what the market will pay, and then the borrower and us have to stay completely connected so that both pieces come together at about the same time. But it's important to note that the special servicer won't take the sale risk. So the borrower's really getting a discounted payoff, and then just the, the way that he's funding the discounted payoff is through these sales proceeds. And we've had a few instances, actually, this is important to note, where the borrower was able to sell the property for an amount that was greater than he had to pay the loan off for. Now, that doesn't happen all the time, but it has happened, and that allowed him to put some money in his pocket at the sale. Okay. So putting the property on the market doesn't jeopardize your position with trying to negotiate a discounted payoff with the CMBS servicer? No, not at all. In fact, it, if anything, it supports it because um, it's helping to establish real market value. Okay. And you're suggesting not put it a, a price on the property, but uh, just put it out unpriced and, and see who makes the, the best offer? That's correct. And although people might think of it like a short sale, it kind of works that way. It's not in that the special servicer is not signing up and agreeing to sale risk. They're not agreeing to just accept whatever the price is. So these are two parallel paths that have to be pursued and obviously very, very coordinated. Okay. And as an investor in that property, then you might have a situation where you're going under contract, but, but have a pretty large contingency on the seller's ability to to negotiate that discounted payoff in a, in a number that, that works for this deal to close, right? Yeah, you really, um, I, I give the caution that you really almost can't uh, sign a purchase and sale um, without having an approval from the special servicer for an amount, unless you're you know, willing to take the risk on your own. Uh, certainly not recommended. So it, once the borrower gets a real offer uh, and needs to accept it or not, that's when he has to come back to us so that we can, in fact, very quickly determine whether or not that price is an acceptable price or greater, you know, with a special servicer. So it really is a very coordinated dual effort. Okay. So you would typically share that uh, that offer with the uh, servicer rather than uh, negotiate that as a separate item that discounted payoff? Oh, absolutely. Okay. They have to be very, very connected. Again, but very important to note, the special servicer is not signing up for that sale risk. So there's a chance that the discounted payoff process gets ahead of the sale process. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, they agree to settle for a dollar amount, and they expect you to pay off and call it 60 days. And you as a borrower are, are signing up for that. 
And so you may or may not have sold your property by then. And if, if you haven't and you don't deliver on the discounted payoff amount, then you're in default. Well, they're probably in default to begin with. So I'm not suggesting they approach it lightly, but it really has to be a very coordinated effort. It is not an easy thing to get done. Right. Well, that makes sense. And well, since the best approach for the investor in this situation is to present a solution to the special servicers in tandem with the borrower, what should an investor say when approaching an owner uh, if they're interested in buying their property, if they know the value is upside down on a CBS finance property? Well, Michael, you just hit the nail on the head about one really important thing, um, uh, and that is that the investors that want to buy into a distressed property really need to be in connection with the borrower. Um, I'll tell you, when defaults started occurring back in you know 2009 and for the next few years, most investors uh, that wanted to buy a distressed commercial real estate property that had all these funds lined up at the special servicer shops in hope of getting the opportunity to buy a property. And that line was, I always say, five miles long, wrapped around the whole city, and it didn't result in much satisfaction. So what, what we you know, determined, and I think most people have finally recognized, is that in order to put your money to work, if you're a distressed real estate fund or, an, or a single investor, to put your money to work, you really need to work with an owner. Um, and you know, then you're going to essentially go through the process that I described on, on your last, a minute ago, but, um, but it has to be in tandem with the borrower. So if the investor is approaching an owner with a CMBS mortgage and the seller maybe just doesn't understand the, uh, the process, uh, what, what strategies or what advice would you give to that investor uh, upon, or a broker upon approaching uh, an existing seller in that situation? Should they, should they give them a little information on how this works and, and hook them up with someone like you to, to help them understand the process? Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to word it is they, they need to, um, let's say that I assume if you're an investor and you know you want a particular property you, uh, and you know that it's suffering, the best thing to do is you know find out who the owner is, approach them and see if they're interested in working something out together. And you don't know what that's going to look like yet. That's the kind of odd part. Um, and then assuming that borrower is somewhat open to, you know, working something out, and I, I don't know why they wouldn't be, um, then the two people together, the current owner and the investor, would call me and we'd talk through kind of what the solutions might be, what the options are, how to approach it. You know, and every deal is going to be a little different, but it, 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 that is the best way for an investor to get to a distressed property um, in today's market by far. Yeah, that's a good point, and you know we've obviously done that that service for investors and for existing owners, and and one of the things that can happen there is a joint venture recapitalization where this new investor brings cash into the deal, and the existing owner, existing sponsor stays in, and sometimes can keep the keep the management and, and keep the leasing, and it looks like to the public uh, there was no change at all. And we're going to get into some uh, uh, joint venture recapitalization deals when we get back from the break. So stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by France Media. France Media provides exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com or call 404-832-8262. 
Welcome back. I'm Michael Ball, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Would you like an easy button to attract more visitors to your website? Well, you can now download a free widget providing your site visitors access to informative commercial real estate show videos and audio podcasts right on your website. Just visit commercialrealestateshow.com and look for the widget on the homepage. It's free and it works automatically. Well, today we're exploring investing in distressed real estate and notes. My guest is Ann Hambly with First Service Solutions. And Ann, before the break, we were discussing joint venture recapitalization deals where an investor comes in and provides the cash and the existing owner or sponsor kind of stays in the deal. Can you give us some examples of uh, recapitalization deals that have worked well that way? I sure can. Uh, one of the most common ways that I've seen investors come in and, and joint venture or recapitalize with the existing owner is in the form of an AB note bifurcation. And um, I think everyone's heard about those by this point, but let me just explain it in general. The loan is essentially right-sized uh, to the value of the property today, and the remainder of the loan kind of goes in the form of a hope note, you know, in a drawer. Um, and in that instance, uh, the special servicer will almost will always require the borrower to put up a substantial new amount of money, kind of new skin in the game at the time of that restructure. And the new money uh, can be used in many ways, um, tenant improvement, leasing commission reserve, a debt service coverage shortfall reserve. They can use it to pay down the A note. Uh, a lot of times the money is needed, uh, it's needed to be held by the special servicer just to make sure the loan doesn't turn around and default again in two years. Now, the new money, finally, in the market over the last couple of years, this new money um, has been able to earn a decent preferred rate of return, and the new money always, always has, well, I say, yeah, always to date, has had priority over the HOPE note. And the purpose in that structure really was for the very thing that you just asked about, which is where you've got an owner that has a property, the value is less than the loan amount, uh, it requires new money. Nobody would put new money over an over-leveraged situation today. So it, it is a, a vehicle in which you can, you know, right-size the debt today, allow new money to come in, and sort of incentivize the new money to come into the deal. Um, one example, if I can just take one second, I want to give an example of a deal uh, that I think was just the, the, the sort of a prime example of how this works at best. In this case, it was a retail center in California, $27 million loan, and it was originated in 2007, as almost all good bad loans were, <laughs> and matures in 2017. Uh, the special servicer agreed to an AB structure, and the value of the loan today, or the property today, was $12 million. So $27 million loan, $12 million A note, $15 million became the B note, or the HOPE note. There was $3 million of new money required to execute here, and that was because there was an estimated $3 million needed of tenant improvement leasing commissions over the next couple of years. Problem is, the existing partnership and owners only had a million to contribute, um, and so they were stuck. They would have not been able to get this deal done, uh, but Arete came in, brought $2 million of the $3 million, allowed the partners to contribute the million. They restructured the organizational ownership structure of the loan, the property, the REIT got 100% control of the property and the management, and so it was a win-win all the way around. There was no tax consequences for the for the current owner. They got to stay in. They definitely lost some stuff, uh, but that is what a new investor would require. And so, you know, it, it, it became a classic example of how this new money can step in and help uh, sort of bail out, if you will, 
uh, current you know owners where the property value is less than the debt. Yeah, well, that's a great example, Anne, and that's something that we do every day is, is help put those kind of deals together. And another thing that we're doing a good bit of is, is selling notes. Uh, will a special servicer sell a single loan to a third-party investor in the CMBS world? Well, to answer that, it's important, first of all, to understand the difficult position the special servicers in. I, I spent my career in their shoes, and I think that's what equips me to, to be a, a good borrower advocate. But let's, let's get in their shoes for a minute. No matter what they decide, there's always going to be someone, especially you know, other bondholders, that will question what they did and why they did it. So if they were to just sell a single note or a property to a third party, without the borrower being involved, they certainly could be questioned about why they took the price they did. Um, How did they really know that the borrower wouldn't have offered more or reinstated the loan? So the answer is really no. They don't typically sell one-off notes or properties to a single investor. And um, actually, again, back to how we we started the whole segment here, the investor really needs to approach the special servicer with the borrower in, you know, in their court. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Sense. Well, Ann, thanks for joining us today. We sure appreciate your time. Thank you. My pleasure. I appreciate being part of your show. Well, thank you. And if you like more information from Ann, they have great uh, information right on their website, and I'll give you that URL. It's one st sss.com. Well, after a quick break, we'll talk to a leading attorney about some best practices and mistakes to avoid when investing in the distress market. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. Does your company provide professional services to the commercial real estate industry? The Commercial Real Estate Show is an excellent way to reach your target audience. For advertising options, visit CommercialRealEstateShow.com or call 888-612-SHOW. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We have some very interesting shows coming up for you, including a show on different types of commercial real estate auctions, an update on the hotel industry, and an interesting show about some of the top issues surrounding commercial real estate contracts. Be sure to catch shows of special interest to you. Sign up for a once-a-week email announcing the show topic at commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, today we're exploring investing in distress real estate and notes. Please welcome my next guest, Duncan Miller, partner with Morris, Manning, and Martin. Duncan is a respected law partner in real estate development and finance, hospitality, commercial finance, commercial real estate debt management, and real estate capital markets practices. Duncan Miller, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, Duncan, when investors are buying properties from from lenders, the lenders like the contracts to be as is. Uh, they don't like to provide any reps and warranties related to title or the property. What are some things that investors should consider in the due diligence and contract process when dealing with lender-owned properties? Well, <clears throat> I think most distressed real estate investors are kind of um, sick and tired of hearing from the lenders that uh, build the uh, the as is contracts into the price. Um, it kind of is hard for 
potential purchasers to get their arms around. And they also, at the same time, the lenders are saying, you, you only have 15 days to buy this property. Right. So not only have they said, we're not going to give you your reps and warranties, but they're saying that we're only going to give you 15 days to figure out what's going on with the property. Let's really kill the value of this asset, that, right? That's right. So it really drives the value down, which is contrary yeah. to you know what I would imagine the lenders really want to do is right. to increase the pricing. Um, but that being said, is you know, oftentimes when people get involved in distressed real estate investment, is that they get they concentrate on the pricing and they concentrate on the value. The loan was originally five million dollars. They're picking it up for two and a half million dollars. They say kind of what can go wrong, um, which again, in my perspective, uh, isn't the right way to look at it. I agree. Um, but then again, I'm a lawyer, so um, <laughs> the we we suggest you treat it just like you would any other acquisition. You go through your due diligence process. If your 15 day, uh, if you only have a 15 day due diligence period, start it before you go under contract. Order your title, get a survey, get your environmental. All of those things are actually protections from you. Sometimes investors think those are protections for a potential lender. They're actually protections for the bar, for the uh, for the the purchaser. Right. So, we our suggestion is to buy it like you're buying regular commercial real estate and do all the due diligence you can. Right. Well, that's a good point. I mean, if the loan's thirty-six million and you're getting it for six million, that doesn't mean it's necessarily a good price. It might be. You need to look at it as as a new deal. Right? Or there could be a very, very good reason why it's only six million dollars. <laughs> exactly. That's what you want to find out. <laughs> that's right. And then in the in the contract stage, are are you finding that some of these lenders are are a little more open to to including any reps or warranties or adjusting in, in, in these contracts? Any or is it still uh, it's our way or the highway? I think sometimes when the, you know, knowledge is is everything. So the more knowledgeable you are about the property, about the situation, then if you go to your lenders and you ask them specific representations and warranties and give them specific reasons why you need those reps and warranties, mm-hmm. um, then they'll they'll listen because it's it, it's a very it, it's a good request. It's not just a request to to you shift liability to the lender. It's a, it's a request that you can say that you need. Um, to make this deal happen at a better price than they otherwise would get without the rep. Right. That you've, you've suggested there's a good reason for it. You've shown them that reasoning, right? That's right. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of and sense. And some lenders are better at that than others. Right. And I guess also as an investor, you have to evaluate. So you, the opportunity there and the risk reward. So you may say, well, look, no reps and warranties as is. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of that deal. Well, wait a minute. It might be an exceptional deal. And if you have some time to do some quick due diligence and figure out it is a great deal, then you may want to say, look, that's fine because look what you're getting here, right? That's right. And a lot of that is understanding what your plan is with respect to that property. If it's a, if it's a property with a, a building on it that you that you intend to lease, then you're going to be more interested in understanding what's the construction, what's the, the, the what improvements need to go into the property to make sure it's leasable. If you're going to knock it down, you're not going to care about that stuff. That's so right. You just need to understand. You need to have your plan. You need to kind of uh, underwrite both from a risk analysis and a financial analysis to make your deal hap- work for you. Yeah, that's a good point. It's like Tom uh, Fink suggested, know what you're getting into. Well, some investors like to buy notes as a way to get to the property ownership. Let's look at some of the issues that can come up there. What might surprise a real estate investor who buys a note? Well, you hear the term note risk. Okay, and what what does that mean? And how is that separate and different from buying REO? Um, the note risk is it's it's a it's a pro and it's a con. It's it's a con. It's a it's a negative because you have a foreclosure risk. You have lender liability risk, and we can talk a little bit about that. Um, it's a positive because you have different options in dealing with the asset. You can 
see yourself as a lender. You can see yourself as, um, uh, you know, potentially the owner of the property, you know, through a deed in lieu or through a foreclosure process. You can see yourself as just, you know, you want to buy a performing loan and you just want to collect a coupon. So understand, you know, again, knowing your plan, what you envision uh, happening um, will dictate your underwriting and um, kind of understanding, gauging the risk associated with the note is, is dependent upon what your plan is in dealing with that note. Right. And and you talked about the foreclosure risk. We're short on the break, but it also matters what state the property is located in, right? Absolutely. I mean, there's a big difference in terms of your underwriting between judicial and non-judicial foreclosure states. Um, and, you know, that that affects all of your underwriting principles when you're deciding whether or not to get into a note deal. So if you've got a property in Texas, you've got to go through the courts to foreclose, right? Actually, Texas is a great state, similar to uh, where I'm practicing here in Georgia, in that um, you can get after the, the property in in 30 days. Um, Florida is the one that keeps popping up as a judicial foreclosure state that creates a lot of problems for potential investors. Right. And you have a lot lo- longer time frame and cost uh, to get to the property ownership level That's there, right? right. All right. right. So you got to gauge your risk. And, and then I guess your bankruptcy risk. Well, we're going to have more tips for you related to buying notes to get to the property after a quick break. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. Sometimes opportunity comes along because you're at the right place at the right time. A commercial redevelopment site on Peachtree Street in Buckhead, Atlanta, appraised for $7.5 million, is now available for $5 million. For more information, visit the homepage at bullrealty.com or call 800-408-BULL. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. You know, you may be listening to the show today anywhere from Portugal to Hawaii. Uh, The show has been broadcast around the world for two and a half years on the radio, on iTunes, and the show website. Well, in January, the show was also picked up by the Wall Street Business Network in 10 major radio markets across the U.S. So wherever you are today, thank you for joining us. Today, we're exploring investing in distressed real estate and notes. My guest is Duncan Miller with Morris, Manning, and Martin. And Duncan, what about lender liability? Can an investor buying a note get into issues by becoming the lender related to lender liability? Yeah, lender liability, the answer is yes, but there's also ways to avoid it. The lender liability, um, some probably smarter lawyers than I can than I am can give you a better uh, definition of it. But it's basically if I'm a lender and I try to exercise my remedies against a borrower that they either have a claim or a defense um, against me from as a lender to exercising my remedies. Mm -hmm. So it can mean anything. The the biggest things that we see and are that that the lender, a previous lender or the existing lender made a promise to them. They amended the loan somehow, some way. Um, It may be in, you know, an email that was never responded to, or it could be in a conversation that somebody had with a loan servicer or a loan officer previously. So the things that we recommend is anytime you get into a kind of uh, negotiation with the borrower in a workout scenario is to make sure you set up a pre-negotiation letter which dictates the terms of the negotiation. The second thing is put it in writing. You know, don't have a lot of verbal conversations. Mm-hmm. Make sure you respond to your emails. You know, people will send an email saying, hey, you modified the loan because you never responded to this email. Um, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of those arguments end up being losers in the court, but they're costly and they're timely in terms of getting, exercising whatever, you know, your, 
your goals are with respect to that that loan. Yeah, well, that's, it's interesting because I think as an investor that that may be used to owning real estate, they've got to realize, well, now you're you're a lender and you're subject to to those issues. And and let's talk about another another one of those issues is note buyers sometimes like to talk to the borrower prior to closing a note purchase. They want to get an idea of the the borrower's intentions and, and maybe know more about the property. What are some issues when buying a note related to communicating with the borrower prior to closing the note purchase? Well, <clears throat> two issues. One is the lender liability issue that we just talked about, is that anytime you're opening up a three-way conversation, um, somebody might hear things wrong or have a different agenda um, depending on which party they're talking to. So it just it gets a little bit ugly when you when you have an existing you have an existing lender you're a potential lender you meaning you're going to buy the note and then you have a borrower and you're now going behind the existing lender's back is a wrong is, is a strong word but you're now talking to the existing lender that has contractual relationships with the borrower and making potentially making a deal with that borrower if and when you buy that note because uh, generally the existing lender doesn't want you talking to that borrower right generally they're going to contractually um, not allow you to talk to that borrower. Now, we get questions all the time. Um, should you know? Is it okay if we talk to the borrower? What are the risks? The answer is no. It's not okay if you have a contractual um, arrangement with your existing lender that you're not going to speak with that lender. A, you know, if the lender finds out, you'll never be able to do a deal with them again. Um, and B, you're then opening yourselves up to potential this lender liability that we've been talking about. Now, knowledge is. Is, is king in the real estate business, specifically in the note business. Um, so as much information you can gather about the borrower situation and um, the property um, is important to you as an investor. So, you know, there's, there's, there's other avenues you can, you can use to not necessarily talk to the borrower, not, and I'm not even talking about going through a middleman to talk to the borrower. I'm just talking about, you know, understanding who the borrower is, um, Doing judgment searches, finding out if he's if he's um, heavily into litigation, finding out if he's a bankruptcy risk as he done in the past. Um, those are those are a lot of that's a lot of good information that will allow you to determine what your underwriting should be in in, in um, deciding whether or not to do the deal. Well, those are some good points. And Duncan Miller, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Michael. If you like more information from Duncan, visit mmmlaw.com. I have an invitation for you as a listener. Can you join us next week? We'll be looking at land and development in a recovering economy. I'm Michael Bull. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is made available by professionals at Cone Resnick, BB&T, France Media, and Bull Realty. For more information about these companies or to access additional show podcasts or videos, visit commercialrealestateshow.com.